Hey everyone, hope everyone's week's going well. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. As you may hear, I'm a little worse for wear. I am currently in Cape Town, South Africa. Just finished up the Adoption Bitcoin conference, which was epic. I was totally fine for that. And then suddenly I've come down with a little bit of sniffles. So yeah, the deadly man flu has struck and I'm not sure I'll survive, but the show must go on. Today's guest is VJ Boyapati. Now, I don't need to go into a bit of a background as to who VJ is. Just Google him. Super smart guy. Bitcoin OG. Was really grateful to get an opportunity to chat to him. He's one of the people who influenced me really early on in my journey, and I'm always grateful for that. His bullish case for Bitcoin is an absolute must-read for anyone just starting their journey. In this episode, we spoke about the ETFs and GBTC, Bitcoin's price swelling up gold's market cap, technology adoption curves, value investing, nation-state adoption, grassroots adoption, circular economies, crypto, and what would happen now to Bitcoin culture subsequent to the financialization of Bitcoin and essentially as we've entered the mainstream era. Overall, what a great conversation. I so appreciated his time and I hope you enjoy the show. That's enough for me. Cheers. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very pleased to introduce my next guest, Mr. Vijay Boyapati. Welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. Thank you for having me, Dale. It's really great to speak to you. Vijay, I must say out the gate that you're one of the most influential people in my Bitcoin journey. I haven't mentioned this to you as of yet, but early on, it was yourself, Lynn Alden and Parker Lewis that really threw me down the rabbit hole. It was your bullish case for Bitcoin that really got me thinking about what is money? And I thought I was a bit of a smart cookie before, but I'd never asked that very obvious question about what the hell is money? And I now tell people, if you want to understand Bitcoin, you need to understand money. And if you want to understand money, you need to understand the history of money. And your articles where I typically send them, and now that you've expanded to long form, which I've yet to unfortunately read. But um, yeah, just wanted to thank you for playing such an important role in my journey because it's four years down the track and my life has changed so much for the good. Well, I really appreciate that. I always feel really great hearing things like that. And I'm in good company with Lynn Alden and <laughs> and Parker Lewis. Uh, just quickly apologize to your audience. I, I have a cold right now, so that's why I sound a little hoarse. No worries. So Vijay, I think uh, let's start off with uh, kind of the news of the day, the ETFs. Some people, I guess some Bitcoiners are kind of tired of it, but it really is a big deal. And we've seen today that Bitcoin sort of dropped below 40 on the back of a lot of sale pressure of GBTC. I wonder if you can just give us your thoughts on what's happening today. And just as a general comment, the significance of the ETFs and where you see this going from a Bitcoin adoption perspective. The ETFs are being approved by the SEC is a huge historical moment for Bitcoin. And I think it's going to have a profound effect on Bitcoin's price level and development into the future, it really makes it quite a lot lot easier for people to get direct Bitcoin exposure. You know, 
there are a lot of people out there who are just not technically savvy enough to understand you know we can talk about hardware wallets and and self-custody and, and all of that which is actually fairly advanced for a lot of people but even the level of going to coinbase going through or, or you know any one of these exchanges going through kyc aml screening and figuring out what an address is what a wallet is these are all very foreign concepts most people don't understand what this kind of stuff is that is is not like people go through a KYC process on a regular basis where, you know, the service that you're signing up for that you don't know is shady or not. You know, if you're coming to this as a new person who doesn't know much about Bitcoin, it all seems very strange. Like, why do you want passport photos? What what are you looking for here? Like most people will go through something like this when they create a brokerage account, but they don't do this very frequently. They might do it once. They'll sign up with Fidelity or E-Trade or, you know, one of those ones and then not think much about it. And so this kind of uh, process is very unfamiliar. That and addresses and wallets and what are all these coins that are available? These are all very unfamiliar concepts. So what these ETFs allow is that people who don't want to go through that process, they can get exposure to Bitcoin very easily by just going to their regular brokerage account and buying an ETF just as easily as they will would buy a normal stock like Microsoft or Google or another ETF like the Standard & Poor's Index ETF. So this is a kind of process that most people who are investors are quite familiar with. So what it does is it, it opens the door to a much wider set of investors who were never going to go through the process of going to a Bitcoin exchange and figuring out the details of wallets and addresses and that sort of thing. Uh, so it really broadens the audience of people who who will be able to buy Bitcoin and who will buy Bitcoin. And one last comment about this. Most people, when they come to Bitcoin, are not rabid Bitcoin enthusiasts. They're, they've spoken to a few people. They're, they're convinced there's something here, that it's an interesting technology. And it might make sense to allocate a small portion of their portfolio to this asset. But if you're going to allocate a small portion of your portfolio to this new asset, it really is a large hurdle to jump to sign up for an exchange and figure out how it works. If you're going to put in one or two percent, a lot of people get stuck at that spot and say, ah, oh, this isn't worth it. This hurdle is completely removed now. And it has big it will have a big impact on Bitcoin's price, but it's also going to have a big impact on the ecosystem as well, if you think about it, because it is going to a lot of volume is probably going to shift away from some of these exchanges and move on to sort of the traditional financial system where people get exposure to Bitcoin through a Fidelity or a Charles Schwab or a brokerage account. I absolutely agree there. And I think what's interesting is a lot of the early adopters of Bitcoin seem to enjoy the freedom go up along with the number go up technology, whereas this mainstream cohorts are probably far more inclined towards number go up and therefore aren't that worried about things like self-custody and addresses and God forbid X UTXOs and that sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? And I suppose when you're thinking uh, going forward now with these ETFs, there's been a lot of kind of movement of late. We're seeing daily updates from the Bloomberg analysts giving us inflows, outflows. Um, and then even today, we saw a lot of outflows, apparently as much as a billion dollars from GBTC somewhere between a third and a half was related to FTX state now selling. Talk to us a little bit about that sort of process now from it's now that it's launched and financial advisors are now potentially able to recommend this. 
And then what that means going forward, if we look at, let's say, gold, uh, the gold ETFs and their market caps and how Bitcoin could eventually swallow a little bit of that. Yeah, so talking about the inflows and outflows, there was kind of a pent-up demand for uh, you know a large number of owners of GBTC to exit that uh, fund. Uh, there are a lot of companies and institutions that have gone into bankruptcy uh, that were holding a lot of GBTC. And the story behind that is actually pretty interesting. I, I don't want to go too deep into that story, but I wrote a very long Twitter thread on this, on the history of this GBTC ARB trade, which is why GBTC was sort of spread out in, in this ecosystem and why so many players owned it. And a lot of these financial players went bankrupt and FTX was one of them. It was holding a very large number of GBTC, I think about 22 million shares, which was worth about a billion dollars. And uh, in the bankruptcy process, FTX needs to liquidate those GBTC. So they're, they're forced sellers to, to pay back creditors in the FTX estate. So there, there will be uh, a process where GBTC is going to pr provide downward pressure on the Bitcoin price because of these liquidations and and the bankruptcy processes that are that are going on you know there's ftx there's celsius voyager genesis there's there's a lot of them <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of these estates hold gbtc so that's gonna, that's going to put a pressure on the uh downward pressure on the price of bitcoin for a while but eventually we'll get to an equilibrium where these bankruptcy processes have ended and all of these estates have been liquidated and once that happens the effect of the ETF is just going to be this giant liquidity channel into Bitcoin. Once Bitcoin finds its equilibrium and starts creeping up as it always does, the amount of liquidity that can flow into Bitcoin now is much, much greater. So I think in the short term, the way to think about this is there could be some pain just because there are forced sellers out there who need to get rid of their GBTC uh, to pay back creditors in these bankruptcy processes. Uh, but in the long term, the liquidity channel that's been established by the creation of these ETFs will make it so that once the bull run really gets going, a lot more liquidity will be able to flow into Bitcoin. So the, I, I think the price could go much, much higher, much faster uh, once the bull market really starts get uh, starts going. That's always good to hear, particularly after the last couple of years uh, where we've had a, a pretty long protracted bear market. Speaking of this um, bull market, um, I actually had Checkmate on uh, recently and we spoke about how that probably kicked off in about October last year and that's when things really started sort of taking off. Where do you see this particular bull market going? I mean, obviously now we've got this momentum with mainstream finance coming on board. We've got the halving or the hardening rather, or the healthening, depending on who you ask, you know, in April, you know, I know you're, you're not a fan of price predictions, but I guess just talk to us a little bit about the momentum that you're seeing from a bull market perspective and any anything that could actually derail the narrative, because it feels as if these tailwinds are just oh so strong. And just when you think things are really, you know, a shoe in Bitcoin, it comes in and hits you in the ass with reality, as it were. <laughs> Yeah, Bitcoin has this habit of creating maximum pain for the most number of people. Uh, you know, when everyone's really bearish, then it'll go up 50%. And then when everyone's exuberant, like the, the ETF launch, it, it'll pull back. It'll pull back 10 or 20%. And then everyone will be like, oh, this thing is over. It's There is no bull market. It does have a habit of doing this. Where this bull market is going, I think this will be a longer bull market. And I think my view is that the price could go much higher than people think. 
just because the ETF being approved really exposes this to a much, much bigger audience. I think in this bull market, Bitcoin, I don't generally don't give price predictions, but I think Bitcoin is going to bite off a very big chunk of gold's market capitalization. So gold right now has a market capitalization of around $13 trillion. And Bitcoin has a market capitalization under a trillion dollars. So it's less than 10% of the size of gold. I think Bitcoin is going to take a big chunk of gold's capitalization. So maybe 30 to 50% would not surprise me in this particular cycle. I think over five years, I generally talk in terms of like five-year time horizons. I think Bitcoin is going to overtake equal then overtake gold's market capitalization. So that would give you a price on Bitcoin somewhere between 500 and 600,000. You need to look at the demand for gold and where it comes from. I think about 40% or so of gold's demand comes from jewelry use. So a lot of that is in the Middle East and India. And that is actually the right way to think of jewelry in places like India and the Middle East is really an ostentatious store of value use. So an Indian who's buying gold and wearing it is buying it as a store of value that they can wear. It's wealth that they pass on through the generations. Indians typically, you know, in weddings and when they give dowries and that sort of thing, they, they give gold uh, and they, they pass it on, their savings on through the generations. So it really is a store of value use case. But so I don't think that is going to be dramatically affected uh, as as Bitcoin goes up, I don't think that demand is going to transfer over to Bitcoin. And another big chunk of demand comes from central banks. Central banks hold a lot of the bullion, as in the non-jewelry use of gold, which is bullion investment demand, comes from central banks. A lot of gold is held at the Federal Reserve, US Federal Reserve, and other central banks around the world. I don't think that's going to change either as Bitcoin rises. I do think, though, the high net worth individual investment demand, like family offices and other rich individuals who are investing in bullion, I think a lot of that demand, however, will move over to Bitcoin. And so at the margin, I think you will see a, a decrease in gold's market capitalization, but it won't be dramatic. What I would imagine is that Bitcoin, say, gets up to 10 or 11 tri trillion in market capitalization and gold goes down a little bit. But I don't believe Bitcoin is going to go up to 13 trillion and gold is going to go down to say 1 trillion. I don't think they're going to switch places like that. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that makes sense. You know, a lot of people, at least in the beginning of my Bitcoin journey, were talking about kind of the technology adoption curve. Do you subscribe to that when it comes to Bitcoin, trying to sort of draw some sort of equivocation between the adoption of the internet and then the adoption of Bitcoin? And if so, where are we? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair comparison. It's a, the adoption curve that was followed by a lot of different technologies over time. And I do think the same will be true. It's the sort of S curve of adoption where adoption grows, you know, fairly, what seems fairly slowly. And then there's this inflection point where it grows almost exponentially and then it plateaus and then it sort of slows down for a long period of time because you have these late adopters who take a very, very long time to adopt any new technology. I, I do think that's going to be the case. And I think the ETF really ushers in the transition to the exponential phase of the adoption curve. I, whether that happens immediately or it happens over three, four, five years, I think that's a, that's a different question. I think we're still very much in the early adopter 
stage of Bitcoin's adoption, however, I think if you look at the number of people who own Bitcoin, it's still only, it's probably globally around one, one and a half percent of the world's population has some exposure to Bitcoin. So I think we're very much in the early adopter phase. I, I'd say we're moving to the mainstream when adoption somewhere around 30%. Okay. Just going back there now to some of the participants potentially in Bitcoin now with the ETFs and the familiar wrapper that they are, the high net worth individuals, the family offices, a lot of them come from a value investing perspective. I know I was certainly a value investor or pseudo value investor in my day. If it didn't have a cash flow, it was hard to see what the valuation would be. How would you, I mean, I'm, I, if, I'm not saying that you would necessarily try and sell Bitcoin, but how do you talk to these types of folks about Bitcoin, the conservative traditional value investor or somebody who's enjoyed a really good run in equity markets and, and looks at Bitcoin as some sort of speculative technology stock? Yeah, there's a few ways to think about this. I think the first thing is to understand that Bitcoin is a new form of money. And most people, uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, don't really understand why money has any value. Most people haven't thought about the history of money and why why is it that, say, in the US we use dollars? That they don't dollars have existed for most people's entire lifetime. And they don't know that you know dollars were once backed by gold. Uh, that backing was removed completely in the 1970s, actually removed partially in the 1930s. So but to understand why money has value, that's a deep rabbit hole. We can talk about that. And, and once you understand why money has value, then you can start understanding why Bitcoin has value because it is a superior form of money. But you can also look at this from the historical perspective and just look at the performance of Bitcoin and say, as a value investor, why would I put any of my savings into Bitcoin? Well, it's pretty interesting if you look at it. If you had a portfolio that was 2% Bitcoin, uh, which is a tiny fraction and 100% cash. So very, very conservative. So no risk at all, just cash. You would have outperformed the sta uh, Standard Poor's Index for the last, I think, five, six, seven years. So what this is saying is that there's a benefit of having an asset in your portfolio that is not correlated to anything else. And this is true, not just for Bitcoin, it's true for gold. Most people don't have any exposure to gold. And if you look at, uh, an analysis of adding gold to a portfolio it has this effect of both reducing volatility and increasing your compounded annual returns over time. So it makes sense just from that perspective. Even if you think, hey, Bitcoin is this crazy volatile asset and I'm scared of it. The way you handle something like that is if you have fear of an asset because it's volatile, all you do is you position your, uh, you, sorry, you change the size of your position your allocation to the point where you feel comfortable. You can't handle a volatile asset with this 10% of your portfolio, make it 1% of your portfolio. The only allocation to Bitcoin I think makes no sense at all is zero. There is a probability that this does become global money. It's already on the path to becoming a global store of value. If it becomes the global reserve currency, as I believe it will, it's going to increase in purchasing power massively. It's going to go 100x from here. So there is a risk not of, to not having any exposure to that. If the world re-standardizes on a new form of money and you've had no exposure, you kind of get left behind all the people who did have exposure to it. So I think it really makes sense 
just from the perspective of reducing volatility in your portfolio, increasing the returns of your portfolio. And if you feel fearful or you don't fully understand it, I think you just need to size your position to the point where you don't feel stress anymore. And most people, I think, could handle the stress of 1% of their portfolio in Bitcoin because most people, their portfolios, you know, move 1% or 2% every day just based on market fluctuations, your stock and bonds yeah. moving around. So a 1% allocation isn't scary. Uh, and I think most people, once they start there, they start learning about Bitcoin. They go down the rabbit hole a little bit. They start understanding what money is, why does it have value? And then they, you know, as they become more comfortable and understand why this is a profound innovation, they start increasing their allocation to five or 10%. And then some people, the allocation gets much larger than that because it, it just grows over time. It's it's sort of programmed in a way that it grows in value because its supply is limited and its adoption's increasing. So you combine those two things and you get a, a you know, price rising continually over time. Exactly. Even if Jamie Dimon says that we can increase the uh, fixed cap supply. <laughs> now, in terms of adoption going forward, one of the things you sort of um, have spoken in the past about is nation states adopting it as a central reserve asset. I guess what we've seen over the last few years is the dollar has been weaponized against countries that are not necessarily friendly towards it. And if you care about humanitarian causes too, then those citizens unjustly get punished as a result as they're effectively cut off from the global financial system. How big a role do you think the nation state adoption is going to play uh, in the next 10, 20 years? I think over the long term, it's going to play a huge part. I think short term, probably less so. Uh, I think it was pretty surprising that we saw some nation state adoption as early as we did with El Salvador essentially adopting it as a reserve currency for their country. So El Salvador made Bitcoin legal tender. You can pay for goods and services in El Salvador without paying any taxes with Bitcoin. Uh, and they also started accumulating it for their foreign currency reserves. I thought that was pretty surprising that something like that would happen so early. And you're also correct that there are a lot of nations out there who would prefer that the world had a more neutral global reserve currency. The US dollar is certainly not a neutral reserve currency. The, the US has political views and it likes to project those political views out into the world. And some countries are okay with that, but a lot of countries are not. And so I think you'll see adoption from some of those countries probably before. I think this is unfortunate as well. I think we'll see adoption from places like North Korea and Iran, perhaps before we see it from countries like the US and Australia and, and Great Britain, which I think is a real tragedy because I think we the earlier countries adopt this, the more they benefit as it gets globally adopted, as I believe it will. And it would be really sad to see these Western countries, which have these great liberal values that most of us subscribe to, like the rule of law and property rights and freedom of speech, all of these things we think are really important. It would be really sad to see them last in line to the world adopting a Bitcoin standard and then seeing these other impoverished countries enriching themselves by adopting it early just simply because they don't want to live under U.S. hegemony. Absolutely. It's almost as if the more privileged you are, the less clear Bitcoin will be to you and the, the less of a problem you have because you don't really see a big problem. If your currency is melting at 2 to 5% per annum, it's not a big deal. But if you're living in Zimbabwe or you know South Africa, where I'm from, and you know that it's 
programmed to debase virtually against the US dollar by more or less 10% per annum, suddenly now you start thinking about trying to preserve your purchasing power. I wanted to get your take on things like, you know, grassroots adoption and circular economies. Um, something that I've sort of grappled with is I see these circular economies popping up around the world, um, Bitcoin Beach, Bitcoin Akasi uh, in South Africa, and you certainly see the, the benefits to those who are unbanked. I've always had the question though, is like obviously the volatility of Bitcoin. I mean, today it's, you know, you've got 4% less purchasing power than yesterday, as an example. I still see it as being in that monetary history journey from a collectible uh, towards like an emergent store of value. And I don't see it being very good as a medium of exchange right now, despite being used there. Some people think it's a bit controversial, but I'm not as much of a fan. I don't know. Where do you stand in terms of these circular economies? Um, and, and on a grassroots level from a Bitcoin perspective. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. I have a section in my book where I talk about exactly this. And going back to your earlier point, people in Western countries sometimes find it harder to understand why Bitcoin is important because they, the, the status quo monetary system seems to work most of the time. I mean, it has problems that they occasionally see uh, and they you know, get a taste of inflation. They don't really like it. But for the most part, it seems to work. It's people from places like Argentina and Venezuela that really, if you explain Bitcoin to them, they, they get it very quickly. In terms of medium of, ex, uh, of exchange use of Bitcoin, in my book, I talk about how money goes through an evolution to becoming a fully fledged money. It starts off as a collectible. It becomes a store of value as more people adopt it and it becomes widely adopted. Once it's fully adopted, then it becomes suitable as a medium of exchange because the purchasing power will stabilize and you won't have this wild volatility anymore. And then when it's widely used as a medium of exchange and goods are priced in terms of it, you'll it becomes the unit of account. You go to a grocery store and you'll see prices in terms of it. The problem with using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange is what you said, it's the, the volatility. And the volatility is a function of the adoption increasing. And adoption increases in these kind of waves or cycles and, and it's not a smooth process. It's not this linear process that some people seem to expect will happen, like that it, it, the price will just go up in this very predictable linear way. That's not how markets work at all. Markets get ahead of themselves and markets panic, but adoption has been growing pretty steadily over, over that process. Now, given that Bitcoin is volatile, there is this opportunity cost of using it in exchange. If you buy something with Bitcoin and you relinquish your Bitcoin and the price goes up, you've lost that opportunity of the, the, the price appreciation. And people kind of have learned this over time, people who have been in Bitcoin a long time. And there's this famous story of someone who spent 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas in the early days. And that kind of really signifies the downside of spending your Bitcoin is that those 10,000 Bitcoin are worth what, like $400 million today. They're worth a lot of money. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure the person who bought the pizzas would rather have those 10,000 Bitcoin now rather than the two pizzas that they ate, you know, over a decade ago. There are places where the transaction costs of using the regular currency are so high that it still can make sense to use Bitcoin in exchange. There are parts of the world that are so impoverished and don't have a good currency where it can make sense to use it in exchange. Or for instance, it was used a lot in the early days in illicit drug markets like Silk Road, because that's an example where there's huge transaction costs to using a regular 
currency. Like imagine trying to pay for drugs using PayPal. The, the transaction cost is that you go to jail because it's very easy to trace you. So people thought, hey, you know, I, I'll, I'll use Bitcoin and I'll forfeit the appreciation because I can buy these drugs and I can do it at less risk to myself. Obviously, now we've learned that it doesn't really help you to use Bitcoin. You can still be tracked down and arrested. But the general point here is that while Bitcoin is becoming a store of value, it doesn't make sense to use it as a medium of exchange because you're relinquishing the upside that you get from holding the store of value uh, into the future. Absolutely. And have you encountered any discussion around if Bitcoin is digital property like Sailor or if it is actually like a currency, like some people want it to be? Because on the one hand, the benefit of the currency is that you don't pay capital gains. So there's no point here in spending your Bitcoin in Australia for the most part. I know people like to pay for things like honey and whatnot. I do at Bitcoin meetups, but that's just the reality. That's the tax regime. And then on the other hand, you've got digital property where much like your real estate, you could actually just never sell and then leverage leverage up to you know your ears for, for eternity and keep refinancing every few years. Is that something that you've thought about or discussed with people? I'd be keen to get your view. Yeah, the classification, I think, from a theoretical perspective, isn't that interesting. I think the pr practical issues are much more uh, important. Just as you say, one of the things that really is hampering Bitcoin's use as a medium of exchange, there's the reason I gave before and that we talked about uh, in terms of you don't want to spend a store of value, but there's also you know, the tax regime as well. Like There's a cost to spending your Bitcoin. If you bought Bitcoin at a dollar, and the price goes up to $10 and you spend your Bitcoins, you have to pay tax on the difference in a lot of countries in the US, for instance. And so it, that creates a number of hassles. First, you have to pay the tax on the appreciation. Then you have to file the tax, which is you have to get an accountant to look through all your transactions. It's a huge pain. It's mm. like you, you, don't, you wouldn't want to spend something where you have to keep track of all your transactions if you're using it on a daily basis. So I think from that perspective, that kind of forces you more to think of it as an asset or digital property. And that also, you know, opens up, if you think of it as digital property, it opens up its usage as collateral, as you mentioned, or for loans. And one of the cool things you can do with Bitcoin is take a loan against your Bitcoin and then spend that money. And because it's a loan, you can sort of deduct the interest that you have to pay on the loan off your taxes. And the benefit with Bitcoin is it, the way it's programmed, it you know goes up in value. So to pay it back, you have to sell over a period of your loan term is say ten years. You have to sell a smaller and smaller percentage of your Bitcoin to pay back the loan. So it's another way of thinking about how you can spend your Bitcoin without really taking the full pain of the tax consequences of selling it directly. Yes. And that seems to be the point that our mutual friend, uh, Sir William of Rotherham, has been uh, talking to me about of late. Bitcoin as pristine collateral. When do you think these types of services are going to become more readily available? I know we've got Unchained and that sort of thing, but for the average person who's a shrimp by glass node metrics under 10 Bitcoin, it just doesn't, it's not really viable at this point and um, the interest rate's too high it's a bit rich too much risk uh, when do you think this will become a little bit more 
accessible to sort of Joe public? That's an interesting question. I think the financialization of Bitcoin with the approval of the ETFs will be part of the process because you'll be able to do the same things with the ETF as well, where you can take loans against the ETF and all of this stuff already exists in the traditional financial system. So people will do it that way as well. Whether or not people who have small holdings will do this, uh, that, you know, that's an interesting question. You know, there's another side to the loan market, which is not just taking a loan against your Bitcoin, but loaning your Bitcoin out mm. and, and receiving interest on that Bitcoin. This has actually been really uh, an area that's been quite dangerous to do because the companies that people have lent their Bitcoin to a lot of them went bankrupt and unfortunately they were run by pretty malfeasant criminal type businessmen. But eventually I think that market is a really, really important market and it will develop uh, and become uh, a lot more trustworthy. And, and I think you'll see people earning money on their Bitcoin by providing Bitcoin loans, putting their Bitcoin on margin at their brokerage account, for instance. And you'll also see people spending their Bitcoin by taking loans against it. So I think both things are going to happen, but that process could take many years. And part of it is just more and more people having a lot of Bitcoin as savings, which will come with the price increasing and more people adopting Bitcoin. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So that so that makes sense. I want to just shift gears now you know, to talk about crypto. It's something that um, I had the misfortune of working in for a little period where I was in crypto media and really got to see how the sausage was made. I always had pretty strong views about it and they were reinforced during my stint there. I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts around quote unquote crypto and whether or not it's got another bull run in it and how you typically explain it to, I guess, people who are uninitiated, who haven't necessarily done a deep dive in Bitcoin. I think Satoshi created this amazing new invention which allowed for a new form of money to exist on the internet. And unfortunately, a lot of people saw that as a way to enrich themselves by copycatting what he did and pretending what they had created was as good as Bitcoin. Unfortunately, most of these things are outright scams. In fact, I would say 99% of them are outright scams, which is just a new coin with fancy marketing created just for the sole purpose of enriching the person who created it with no other. And, and they'll give you all these reasons why their coin is really interesting and what features it has. But what they really lack is the liquidity, the network effect, the, the regulatory framework that now exists around Bitcoin that exists in many, many countries. And most countries see these things as securities. That is, they are basically just stocks created by a person or a small group of people to make money for themselves. So there, there's a few exceptions to this. Uh, Ethereum is, you know, has existed for quite a while now and is the one that most people ask about when they first come to Bitcoin and they say, what about this other Ethereum thing? Mm -hmm. I think the problem with Ethereum is that it's really treated itself more as a piece of software than as a network protocol. And why that why that's important is that as a piece of software you want you know the software to be upgraded and you can add new bells and whistles but as a network protocol and as a as a monetary system you don't you really don't want it to change gold was money for 5000 years because it was stable and predictable and it didn't suddenly 
you know, morph into copper or something else. It was a fixed supply, very short, uh, sorry, very uh, limited supply. And, and that's why it became so valuable. The problem with Ethereum and the fact that it can be changed as easily as it can be changed is that you really can't rely on its monetary policy remaining constant. That's the one thing that really sets Bitcoin apart. The fact that its supply is limited to 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be mined and created is unique. And it's because Bitcoin is a truly decentralized system that is very, very hard to change. And the fact that it's hard to change, that it's immutable, makes it really quite different to any of these other coins that have been created. They're all you know, just little pieces of software that people tinker with and can change very easily. And so you really can't rely on them. Uh, so I, I would say Bitcoin is quite different. It's it's a, the only truly decentralized system. It's the only system that is immutable. And so that you can trust the rules of Bitcoin. And the most important rule is that there'll never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. I tend to echo those sentiments and I hope to be sharing that at the the next conference in, in Cape Town. Uh, that's what I'll be chatting about because it's something that frustrates me because I feel like, and I've said this before on the show, that crypto sucks the oxygen out the room in the sense that, I mean, it does suck liquidity and attention away from Bitcoin. And I feel like, to use the words of you know, Corey Clipston, it's kind of contra Bitcoin. It's like, it's just hampering adoption. And so, you know, I, I do everything I can to try and prevent people from conflating the two. And then, you know, what you choose to do with your own money is your own thing. BJ, I guess um, going back now, just a step to, I guess, the financialization of Bitcoin, um, the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin, we're going to see Bitcoin change, not necessarily the protocol, but the culture. And for a lot of people, and I call myself included, a Bitcoin maxi, this is one part of our identity. And a lot of people might feel somewhat threatened by this and feel as if the culture is going to change. Um, I'd be keen to get your take as someone who's been in the space for a long time, who has pretty much, you came in, I guess, for, uh, well, at a time when it was more about sort of censorship resistance and libertarianism and that sort of stuff, as opposed to, uh, you know, there's an ETF around the corner. So just talk to us a little bit about what you see happening, just from a cultural shift uh, in this post-ETF world? Yeah, the, I mean, the culture in the Bitcoin community has already dramatically changed from the early days. Like you said, in the early days, it was cypherpunks and the computer scientists who knew enough about what Satoshi was doing to even understand why it was important. And then the libertarians came along and then you had tech early adopters. And now you're starting to see more mainstream people get interested in Bitcoin. And I think that is inevitably going to change the culture because the number of people who are cypherpunks and libertarians is actually quite small. Uh, most people are not. So as as the masses come to Bitcoin and adopt it as a better form of money, uh, it's going to dilute that culture a lot. But on the, on the positive side, I think Bitcoin, in my observation, has had a transformative effect on the people who tend to start saving in it because they recognize that, hey, wow, I I've never saved in an asset that's truly scarce that's fixed in supply and so if i obtain more and more of it it's going to grow in value over time and people start getting this mindset once this clicks i need to get as much bitcoin as possible as quickly as possible and this i've seen this in so many people it turns people into savers rather than consumers and 
speculators, people who are like looking to speculate in something because if they don't, then their money loses value over time. When your money increases in value over time, it changes you and transforms you into a saver. So I think that is, uh, I, I have hopes because of that. But I do think the culture is going to be diluted a lot. It's going to be much, much less libertarian. I, I don't worry about that, to be honest. The same thing kind of happened with the internet as well. People who were there at the early days of the internet had these high ideals, very libertarian as well, about speech being uncensored and people being able to say whatever they could and it being much more democratic system. The truth is that the internet has kind of coalesced around these major powerhouses that control a lot of the communication that happens. So Microsoft, Google, Twitter, they have enormous power on controlling communication on the internet. So the ideal that the, you know, the early adopters of the internet had about what it would look like hasn't really come to be. But on the other hand, the world today is much freer in the communication of information than it was 30 years ago. Much, much freer. Anyone can express the opinion that they want. You can host a podcast. You could grow an audience that challenges, you know, a lot of traditional media. And the traditional media players have lost a lot of power. They can no longer control the narrative. They can no longer control the population. It's very easy to find countering narratives now online. And so there is a lot more freedom of information, even though there also has been a lot of concentration of power on the internet. So I think, you know, a similar thing might happen to Bitcoin as well. There might be major players that concentrate a lot of power in, within the Bitcoin ecosystem, but the world will also be a lot freer because people will have a way of keeping their savings that can be free of debasement and free of confiscation. If you really want to hold your savings in something that you can keep and it won't be debased by inflation and you want to leave a country and take your savings with you, you can do that now. So I think the concerns are valid, but I think you also have to see the, the, the positives as well as, as we get much wider adoption. Oh, fantastic points there. Absolutely. It's definitely one of the most transformative things I can say from my personal experience that I measure everything now in terms of an opportunity cost relative to stacking Bitcoin. And my wife will attest to this because I regularly will bitch and moan about some sort of recent purchase that she's made that I feel is frivolous and be like, you're going to pay 10x for that <laughs> I mean, in five listen, years. Think time. how much that'll be worth in like, yeah, think how much that you know, you buy like a Toyota Camry and you say, you just spent a Lamborghini. Yes. Like, why would you spend that now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think that was the first thing that I think you said that really spoke to me. And then also what's quite amazing when you draw that comparison between the internet and Bitcoin, it's like, yes, we can bitch and moan about the likes of Facebook and Google and all these sort of, and the technocratic uh, surveillance state. But I don't think that we would have been able to have withstood the sheer like vast quantity of propaganda during COVID, if you like, with everything. And we were able to go and find information. You know, yes, there was censorship, but we figured out a way. And the truth will set you free and it, and, and it found a way. And that's what's so magnificent about it. You can't really stop it. And I guess Bitcoin is almost like a monetary form of that. I mean, it's a it's it's the you know the protocol of value as opposed to the protocol of information. So I absolutely love that comparison. I think it's inevitable. And yes, I'm sure the culture will change. Diehard uh, steak-eating carnivores will remain, um, as well as all the suits who enjoy a number <laughs> go up. You've been very generous with your time, VJ, and I also appreciate you not feeling uh, 100%. So what I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with one last question. 
you've been in this space for a long time. You've obviously dedicated your life to it. And I'd be interested to understand what is it about Bitcoin that not only, you know, made you want to focus on this full time, but also makes you want to focus on it going forward. Cause I can't see you doing something else in the future. <laughs> I think for me, it's the, the freedom uh, producing potential Bitcoin has. That's the thing that attracted me first. Uh, I understood it early on as kind of like a form of gold that you could teleport. And I thought, well, what are the possibilities that, that are made possible by that? And it really changes the world in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I, I think it really helps is that people who are trapped in oppressive regimes around the world, they can now escape with their savings. And, and that that is a profoundly important thing for families who just want their freedom, want to go to a better place and live a better life. So for me, it's that Bitcoin is a freedom technology. Uh, and whether, you know, people who are late adopters care about that or not, doesn't matter. It the, Its existence adds freedom to the world. And that's why I care about it. That's why I'll keep talking about it and uh, encouraging people to think about it and, and see it as the best form of money that's ever existed. Yeah, there we go. Love it. Awesome, DJ. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this chat. As I said from the outset, like uh, you really were really influential in my journey. And uh, I started this podcast last May and turning back. And uh, I'm hoping that one day this can be my career and I can contribute uh, even a fraction of what you've done for the community so thanks for everything you've done and i think everyone knows where to find you i'll put links uh, in the show notes to to all your work but uh, do you have any other parting words it's great speaking to you dale uh and I, I do hope you have a big influence on bitcoin and bitcoin's community our uh, parting words i think it's a great time to become interested in bitcoin i think we're still so early in its adoption globally it's only you know one or two percent so I know a lot of people look at the price and think, wow, you know, it's it's it looks really high and uh, all these other people got in before me. But do a deep dive, try and understand why it's important and and uh, get yourself some Bitcoin. I, even before you, you know, one of the best pieces of advice one of my friends gave me early on was buy some Bitcoin and then learn about it <laughs> mm. because you have some skin in the game. And even if it's a really small amount even if it's only one percent of your portfolio i think it's worth having some allocation to it and then go down the rabbit hole i think you'll quickly understand that this is not some you know, ponzi scheme or some fraud or anything like that this is a profoundly important innovation that was created by satoshi nakamoto and, and it's worth uh learning about and and seeing its importance 100 percent your one percent will soon swell to five percent and once you've seen it up to everything else you want to be hashtag irresponsibly long bj thanks so much uh all the best and uh hope you can meet in person today thanks dale great speaking to you thanks for listening to today's episode i hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it either way hit me up on twitter and let me know what you think my handle is dale21m if you've got any suggestions as to people you think i should be talking to or topics i should address to I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. 
Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.